It's common amongst stooge aficionados to cite Larry Fine as the thinking fan's favorite stooge. <laughs> the idea is that while Moe, Shemp, and Curly have much bigger personalities and get into more antics, Larry's approach to comedy contains more nuance and layers. I mean, there's nothing subtle about the Three Stooges at all, but I would argue that Larry's appeal does have a bit more depth, at least if we're speaking in relative terms. Uh, Larry finds facial acting, body language, and deceptively well-timed quips never demand the spotlight, but attentive Stooge audiences will find plenty to appreciate. For this recording, our second in a series on the Three Stooges, we'll be looking at four shorts that highlight the talents of Larry Fine. We'll then deconstruct Larry's importance to the act and how he contributed to the endurance of the th Three Stooges overall. My name is Ryan. This is a real deep dive. Alright, just like with our last episode about Shemp, Rachel is joining us. Yeah, this was kind of both of our ideas. We always kind of wanted to continue on and we figured that since we already done Shemp, Larry is then the next underappreciated stooge, so we have to do him. Also, so far, we've been doing them in order of when they joined Healy's act. Shemp was the first, Larry was the second. So I guess it makes sense in that context. Mm -hmm. uh, so I chose two, and Rachel chose two. Which includes uh, Larry's personal choice, a very odd one, but we'll get to that later. And before we do that, I'll just do a brief overview of Larry's life leading up to the Stooges. Uh, we will be retreading some territory that we covered on the Shemp episode, but, yeah, well, wouldn't be a bad idea to revisit it. Mm -hmm. uh, Larry Fine was born to a Russian-Jewish family in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. His father owned and operated a watch repair and jewelry shop. Uh, at a very early age, Larry severely burned his arm with acid that his father used to test jewelry for its gold content. Um, it was believed that violin lessons would help Larry strengthen the damaged muscles in his forearm, and before long, he became a proficient musician. I just realized we didn't actually pick any shorts where he plays the violin. There's a lot of them where he's playing the violin. Yeah, I mean, the one that leaps out at me is the one where Larry playing the violin makes Curly into a fantastic boxer, but that's definitely a Curly joint. Yeah, that'll be a Curly one, I think, for sure. Yeah. Fine was going to be sent to a music conservatory in Europe, but the outbreak of World War I killed that idea real fast. Uh, Larry also took up boxing to help his arm recover, and he even won a professional match. For a while, he was a lightweight fighter, but uh, his father forbid him from pursuing it further. Probably the best idea. Uh-huh, yeah. I mean, back then, they didn't know what boxing did to you, but it, you, you got an idea. Yeah, there's no Foley artists for the punching noises in boxing. Uh, Fine began playing the violin in the vaudeville circuit and soon caught the attention of Ted Healy and Shemp Howard. Healy and his Stooges were performing in the Schubert Brothers' A Night in Spain, and since Howard was leaving the play for a few months, Healy asked Fine to fill in. During the period where uh, Healy was interviewing Larry, he, uh, he had just bathed and his hair was still wet and it started drying in this weird way that it poofed out in the back. And Healy thought that Larry's hair looked pretty funny that way and he should just do that in the act going forward. So that's where that came from. Yeah, you know, it fits though. Somebody has to have, you know, funny hair. They all have like, the Three Stooges, all of them kind of have a shape. Yeah. Well, we talked about that, I think, in the Shemp episode a little mm. bit, and how it's very easy to, like, boil the Stooges' essence down to, like, silhouettes, almost as if they're cartoon characters. Yeah. And that's probably one part of the reason why they uh, remain iconic going forward. Uh, the Marx Brothers have a similar effect to them. Mm-hmm. 
Anyways, when Shemp returned to Healy's uh, troupe, he had his brother Mo performing alongside with him. Uh, after performing in the Schubert Brothers' A Night in Venice, uh, the crew appeared in the 1930 film Soup to Nuts. And around this period, uh, Fine married his wife, fellow vaudevillian Mabel. Now, we already covered the ups and downs of the Stooges' relationship with Healy in our Shemp episode, but as a reminder, uh, Shemp split from the act to pursue a solo career as a character actor and was replaced with his little brother, Curly. However, because of Healy's drinking, his demeaning attitude, and a lack of transparency when it came to paying his employees, as we Ooh, discussed, yeah. Healy um, didn't believe in banks. And he wasn't the best bookkeeper on his own terms, and he was probably hoarding more money because he was top billed. Yep. This all contributed to the Stooges finally severing ties with him in 1934. On that very year, the three Stooges began their lengthy career filming short films for Columbia Pictures. And we are starting with the very first Three Stooges short because it is one of the few where Larry is the main character. Uh, we are talking, of course, of woman haters. Yeah, and it's kind of interesting, though, because this is the Three Stooges, but it's like, it's barely the Three Stooges. They're, um, you know, character personalities haven't quite it cemented. You know, Mo is clearly still the boss, but he is not the boss Stooge the way he is in all of the other shorts. It's in verse, very forceful verse, and there is music, which really isn't there in the rest of the shorts. Yeah, Larry and Curly hit him back more often than usual, and sometimes they initiate the aggression. It is weird. Yeah, it's weird. It's like one scene in it where Mo and Curly are bossing Larry around, and it's like, that almost never happens otherwise. There's also a bit where Larry and Curly are interacting with each other without Mo. I can't think of any many other instances where that happens. I feel like there's more, like there's a couple of shorts where like Mo is in trouble and they're tormenting him extra. Uh, I think those might be my picks for um, when we do the Mo shorts. But yeah, it, it is definitely kind of a not quite there. Early installment weirdness for sure. Anyways, in this one, the Stooges, who are traveling salesmen, uh, join the Woman Haters Club, swearing to never get romantically involved with any ladies. Yeah, and it's funny, they're not even Mo, Larry, and Curly. They all have, like, different character names. Yes, their promise lasts until the very next scene, where Jim, Larry, mm. meets an attractive woman named Mary, Marjorie White, and gets engaged with her in between scenes. His fellow woman haters Tom, Mo, and Jack, Curly, it's weird that they call each other these names throughout. <laughs> yeah, it's like, why don't they just call themselves Mo, Larry, and Curly? Oh yeah, they talk Jim out of it. <laughs> However, during the engagement party, Mary's intimidating father just sort of subtly, not so subtly, threatens Jim to marry his daughter by telling him a story about how his other daughter, having a fiancé who tried to abandon her on the wedding day, and his brothers had roughed him up for it, and he's still walking around on crutches how to that did point. You, how did you, as an Irish person, feel that they hit every single Irish stereotype in one scene? I mean, to be honest, <laughs> although Irish is in my ancestry, I'm fourth generation, so it feels a little inappropriate for me to get offended on behalf of the people of Ireland for that <laughs> very obvious red-faced Irish cop stereotype that lumbered around there. <laughs> I feel like I'm a bit of a poser <laughs> whenever I talk about my spiritual connection to Ireland because I don't have one. <laughs> I am I am ugly American bit. through and through. 
Anyways, uh, Jim is convinced to go through with the ceremony, much to the man's dismay. Later, on a train ride, his two fellow stooges with the wrong names confront him, <laughs> which uh, causes Mary to use her feminine charm to woo both Jack and Tom in an attempt to make Jim jealous. It's like she's the only woman to marry all three of the stooges, basically. Uh, <laughs> She sings the short's main theme, My Life, My Love, My All, with each of the Stooges in turn as she flirts with them. Each is attracted to her uh, and begin wavering on the oath that they swore as the woman haters. Mm -hmm. Although uh, Jack does attempt to resist her. <laughs> Finally, Mary tells Tom and Jack the truth that Jim and she were married and she pushes her way into bed with the trio, knocking Tom and Jack out the train window in the process. Uh, the film closes as the Stooges now much older, finally reuniting at the now almost empty woman haters clubhouse when Jim enters and declares his intentions to rejoin. Presumably he's a widower or something. Yeah, I mean also the guy who heads the woman haters club is Bud Jamison who is a stooge lifer in a bunch of other shorts too so it's kind of cool that he got to be in the very first Three Stooges short. Yeah, you mentioned that there's um, a lot of like rough edges and they hadn't quite figured out what they're doing yet. I suppose I shouldn't be surprised, but most of the stuff that's that are hallmarks of Stooges shorts are in place. Mm -hmm. uh, obviously, they performed for years before uh, they got in front of a camera, but they are more or less who they are. It's mm -hmm. just that they're not the main attraction. This was billed as a uh, Marjorie White short, and the Stooges were supporting players. Mm-hmm. Anyways, this was shot over four days, and it was the sixth entry in Columbia's short-lived musical novelty series. Yeah, it's like, it's not even the Three Stooges, it's like, a musical novelty. <laughs> yeah, uh, the plot is loosely inspired by Shakespeare's Love's Labor's Lost, and all dialogue is written in a Jazz Age-style variation of the Bard's heroic couplets. At this point, I still should mention that the yeah the Stooges and every other character are talking entirely in rhyme, while a soundtrack unceasingly rolls through the short, yeah. also separating it quite a bit from other Stooges. Yeah, shorts. and in the rhymes, they're very forceful in places. It's like ooh, not the best. Yeah, uh, the musical cues were all recycled from prior musical novelty shorts, all of which have been pretty much forgotten. The entire series is more or less forgotten, aside from the fact that the very first Three Stooges short is one of them. Mm -hmm. As I mentioned already, Marjorie White got top billing over the Stooges here, and uh, this was her final performance as she died in a car accident the following year. Oh, that's too bad. She was cute. She had a funny little voice, and she could sing. Yeah, she easily was the best singer in the entire shorts. I mean, the, I mean all of the Stooges are musical in their own right, but none of them were voices. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, Rachel already mentioned that Bud Jamison is this one, and not only is he in this one, but he is the very first person to do an eye poke. I know, right? <laughs> Although they don't have the little boink sound effect that goes with it. That's the thing that felt the most wrong to me. Yeah, and you need that Foley artist. Uh, this is also the first time that Curly on film goes woo 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 or yuck yuck, although he hasn't quite nailed down either one. Yeah, he kind of goes woo 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 woo, but it's not quite as fast as his usual noises. It kind of reminded me of like a stereotypical Tarzan chant. <laughs> Maybe just a little. This uh, short also served as Walter Brennan's film debut. He's the train conductor. He has the very specific uh, accomplishment of being one of only three actors to win three Oscars. Uh, male actors. 
That's pretty good. It shouldn't surprise anyone that none of the Stooges like this short all that much. Uh, mm -hmm. The writer-director of this, Archie Gottler, wouldn't work with the Stooges again until he co-wrote 1958's Sweet and Hot, one of the very last uh, Stooges shorts of the theatrical era. Yeah, that's a very wide range. <laughs> they all look so young in this, too. Like, I mean, it's one thing watching like some of the shorts from like the 30s and then going into the 50s. Like The three Stooges made shorts for a very long time. Yeah, a little over 40 years. Mm -hmm. And yeah, they're relatively babies in this. <laughs> yeah. And in case you're wondering, there isn't any definitive evidence that the little rascals based the He-Man Woman Haters Club on this short, but plenty of people think that that's pretty likely. Neat. And the next one we're doing is one that Rachel picked, Playing the Ponies. Uh, came out in 1937, and it is the 26th short overall. I picked this one because Larry gets to be the jockey in this one, where the Three Stooges basically give a horse performance-enhancing drugs. I mean, it's pepperinos, but it's drugs, basically. Yeah, yeah they, they open the horse. <laughs> yeah. You said that uh, you forgot the title of this one, so you, like, Googled Three Stooges horse, and there's, like, eight of them because yeah. of course there was. There's another. It kept giving me all of, like, the Western motif ones, because so the Three Stooges made a lot of, like, Western-themed shorts. And I was like, no, 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 I want the one. I Eventually, I found the name of it by typing in, like, Three Stooges Larry Rides Horse. I mean, that makes sense because the Three Stooges are basically live-action cartoon characters. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you look at, like, Looney Tunes or even the Mickey Mouse stuff, they'll just transplant them to, like, Robin Hood, to the Old West, to Knights of Chivalry and whatever. And since the characters are so broadly sketched out, they just kind of fit in wherever you put them. Yeah, there's a couple ones where they go to ancient Rome. Anyways, we open with this one with the Stooges operating a failing restaurant. They're <laughs> operating the restaurant, so of course they're failing. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a nice little diner, but, you know, Mo and Larry are the waiters, and Carly is the one cooking, so you should be concerned. Yeah, their idea of chicken soup is just to pour hot water on a chicken and then just serve that. <laughs> Yeah, two men, Nick Copeland and Lou Davis, walk in and order food as they look over a racing form. Uh, one of them laments the state in which his horse, Thunderbolt, is in, claiming that he is all run out and that he wants to dump him off on some unsuspecting sap. Uh, this works in his favor when Larry opens a newspaper and reads a story about a horse named Madcap who won a race worth $10,000. In 1937 money. According to a calculation I came up with, that's the equivalent of $188,000 today, but take that with a grain of salt. That's a lot of dough. Uh, the Stooges overhear this and decide that they want to sell their restaurant to Thunderbolt's owners and get into the horse racing industry. <laughs> Upon arriving at Thunderbolt's stable, Curly races the horse around the track. Uh, he misunderstands and runs alongside Thunderbolt, but he stops <laughs> and Mo calls him over. Uh, feeling hungry, Curly pulls out a handful of chili pepperino snacks that he had swiped from the restaurant, mistaking them for salted yeah, peanuts. Yeah, I mean, I will say this short did a pretty good job foreshadowing the whole idea of the the horse is going to eat the pepperoncinos because Larry is, not well, Larry, Curly is constantly eating the salted peanuts. We watch a guy eat the pepperoncinos and he just like smoke wafts out of his mouth. <laughs> Thunderbolt, upon eating the pepperoncinos, burns his mouth and runs like lightning towards the nearest <laughs> water trowel. When uh, they figure out what the horse was eating, they decide to use it as an ace in the hole for the upcoming race. 
Once the race starts, Thunderbolt turns around and starts running in the opposite direction. Uh, Larry stops him and then feeds him the hot peppers, but the effect is too much for Thunderbolt and he is too disoriented to run. Moe and Curly grab a bucket of water, hop onto a parked motorcycle, and drive alongside Thunderbolt with the bucket hanging from a pole in front of him. Thunderbolt wins the race and the Stooges enjoy the good life as they each eat their own turkey and Thunderbolt gets just a giant pile of oats and a big bowl right across the table. Yeah, I mean, it's like, see, he's okay too. I mean, I think there's a couple of scenes that I would want to talk about. I just, even if it's not Larry, I love Moe's fight with the kitchen door. Like, if you ever work in a restaurant, you know how the doors are designed to basically open really easily with minimal effort. And when I worked in a country club, I had to tell the rich patrons that they really needed to not stand in front of the door because a lot of times when the waitress is carrying a heavy tray, we just can't them open. So poor Moe's is opening them, getting smacked in the face, and then he thinks that he's escaped it. They hit him in the back this time. <laughs> oh, the 1% do not learn from the Stooges. Oh my god. And can we talk about how Larry's jockey uniform is absolutely hilarious? Clad and then polka dots. Yeah, he's essentially the Golden Age Green Lantern. <laughs> Alright, uh, Playing the Ponies was shot over the course of eight days, fairly lengthy for a Stooge short. Uh, this is the second and final Stooges short directed by Charles Lamont. He said that he enjoyed working with the Stooges and the other Columbia crew, but uh, he hated the Columbia president, Harry Cohn, and moved on to bigger and better things. Uh, Lamont overall directed over 200 subjects and has uh, writing and producing credits on even more. Working with, uh, in addition to the Stooges, Buster Keaton, Shirley Temple, Abbott and Costello, Donald O'Connor, Ma and Pa Kettle, and Francis the Talking Mule. <laughs> that, that is definitely the feather in his cap. <laughs> <laughs> Playing the Ponies got a hideous colorization in 2004. It was included on some DVD set. I mean, I've seen some of the colorizations, and, like, it's... I wouldn't say that it's even, like, they're colorized. They don't look lifelike. They look like paintings come to life. Like, the novelty of it is kind of cool, but it's a little disorienting to look at for long periods of time. I don't think it's quite as bad as, like, the Ted Turner colorizations of King Kong and Casablanca, but, <laughs> you, you know, watch it in the OG thing. That's, uh, that's mm -hmm. damning the faint praise right there. <laughs> Some claim that the 1937 Marx Brothers film, A Day at the Races, swiped elements from this short. I'm not fully on board with that idea. No gags, at least as far as I can tell, are straight-up rip-offs. They all have different routines, and also, both of these came out in 1937. I'm just thinking that, you know, Racetrack is a decent place to set up Golden Age comedy. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, it is a pretty, I'd say the plot is, you know, decently tight on this one. It's like Stooges have restaurant, Larry cooks a shoe for people, they get the horse, the horse laughs at the Three Stooges, they figure out what makes the horse go. There's a lot of, like, the Three Stooges try to do sports short. But um, they do have a few ones with animals, but I thought this one was kind of cute because, you know, as a kid, I liked that it had a horse. And, you know, look at the horse at the end. He's got his own bowl of oats. So, look, it's okay that the Three Stooges gave him pepperinos. <laughs> 
I mean, by my standing, the most memorable scene in Day at the Races is the the bit where Chico keeps selling the sports books to Groucho, and it just keeps escalating from there. And there's nothing like that here. Anyways, that, moving on to the next one. Uh, no Census, No Feeling, 1940. This is the 50th short. This is also your pick. Yeah, I picked it just because um, Larry has like a good line reading in it. So there's like a... I'll get you to the um, plot recap, but I just thought that it was a funny line reading, and that's why I picked it. Alright, we open with the Stooges being caught sleeping in a closed awning situated over a store. Okay, I wanted to do that as a kid after watching this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, a violent argument among the trio results in Curly casually tossing a pot over his shoulder, breaking several dishes. The shopkeeper, played by Max Davidson, as infuriated with the Stooges for vandalizing his store, calls the police and chases them. The Stooges then dash into a building's revolving door, and upon exiting the building, which is City Hall, the Stooges have clipboards in tow, having inadvertently landed jobs as census takers. <laughs> uh, the boys work their way into the home of a socialite, Simona Boniface, who is also a Stooge lifer, who is concerned with a lack of participants in her weekly bridge game. My bridge, I'm still playing short for my bridge game. <laughs> she was like, basically, you've never seen her. She's essentially like a grand dame. She marries Curly at least three times in different shorts. Yeah, she's not quite Margaret Dumont, but she's cut from the same cloth. Oh, for sure. Uh, the Stooges happily comply and join the game, but in the interim, Curly begins to flirt with the socialite's maid, who is in the process of preparing a large bowl of punch. Curly finds that the drink is not sweet enough since he's decided to blunder into becoming the chef. And <laughs> he really gets into character, like, immediately. Yeah, puts on the hat, starts <laughs> yeah. making his little curly noises. He's like, la da da <laughs> But mistaking alum, salt, for powdered sugar adds it to the mix. And uh, within minutes, everyone is mumbling their words as their lips become puckered. Another thing that is also lifted by Warner Brothers shorts. Yeah, I mean, I love the part where uh, Curly says, I'm just going to water the flower, and he pours it on the lily, and the lily goes, Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, I thought that things... scene was pretty funny as a kid, for yeah. sure. Things descend into chaos, and after the, the Stooges mug around and drench the one percenters, they get kicked out. <laughs> but we're only halfway through, because speaking of awkward transitions, uh, the Stooges notice that uh, there is a football game where most of the people are at. Uh, they become thrilled with the prospect of speaking to everyone in the stadium, and therefore earning con commissions for like hundreds of thousands of people. Mm -hmm. In order to sneak in, the trio don football uh, player uniforms and bypass the guard. They storm the field and start trying to ask questions of the players, <laughs> who are doing their best to ignore them. Uh, Curly finds an ice cream vending cart and takes <laughs> off after them, uh, somehow hijacking the wagon. The Stooges get pulled into the game and after a few bouts of hardship get an idea. If they would get the ball away from the players, they would have no choice but to answer their questions. <laughs> With that, Larry and Moe attach chains to the pants of two players and pull them off, distracting everyone else uh, long enough for Curly to grab the ball and run away. He goes. <laughs> the players no notice him eventually and give chase. Mm -hmm. uh, Curly continues running like mad while Larry pulls the ice cream wagon, carrying Mo behind him, throwing fistfuls of ice cream at the players and the referee who are chasing them. And then the Stooges run out of the stadium, followed by the angry football team. And that is what passes for the plot in this one. <laughs> yeah, it's a little loose. I mean, like the first half is pretty good, but um, so my, I picked this one for Larry, even though he kind of doesn't really get like a starring role in this 
this one um, because there's a scene in it where you know Curly's deep in character is the chef in the house and Mo starts interviewing him and he's just like, where were you born? He's like, Lake Winnipesaukee. And he's like, make it Lake Erie. I got an uncle there. And then he's just sort of like, I was one of a litter of three. And I was the one they kept. And then there's like a scene where Mo thinks he's talking to this one guy, but he's actually talking to Larry. And he asks him, you know, it's like, where were you born? Lake Winnipesaukee. And he's like, Mo gets mad. And he's like, don't tell me you were one of a litter of three. He's like, don't tell me you were the one they kept. And he goes, nah, I'm the one they threw away. And I thought that line reading was just pretty funny. So that's why I picked this one. Yeah, this one also got a hideous colorization in 2004. Uh. And um, standout for this is that there are a couple of dated references in this one that would need historical like, explanation. But are pretty funny, though. Yeah, uh, Curly's remark on Thanksgiving pokes fun at President Roosevelt moving the holiday to an earlier Thursday in November in order to lengthen the Christmas shopping season during the height of the Depression. Uh, Republicans, irate at this gesture, campaigned to move it back to the fourth Thursday in November. I'm sorry, but that sounds like something Republicans would get mad about now. <laughs> yeah, the idea of a, of a fixed Thanksgiving is a relatively recent phenomenon. I mean, when Lincoln called the first one, it was just like a special occasion. It wasn't like, we're going to have one of these every year. Mm -hmm. It was a very gradual holiday. Uh, the other one is when uh, the Three Stooges become census takers. Curly confuses census for censor and then mentions the name of Willie H. Hayes a Republican politician who oversaw the Motion Picture Production Code, or Hayes Code, which put strict, which put strict <laughs> guidelines of what content was allowed in Hollywood movies from 1934 to 1968. We have brought up the Hayes Code before, and I'm sure we will do so again. Yeah. Alright, and then the final one that we're talking about <laughs> is Larry's personal favorite. Yeah, I'm kind of surprised that it is, although it does have its charms. It's probably one of the not-so-great Three Stooges shorts. Oh, I should mention that uh, the census one was directed by Del Lord, who uh, I'm not 100% on that. Yeah, he did about three dozen shorts, which if he isn't the most prolific Stooge director, he must be up there. Mm-hmm. But uh, Cuckoo on a Choo Choo, on the other hand, was directed by Jules White, who became the head of Columbia Shorts Department in 1933, and therefore his name pops up in the credits of almost oh, every yeah. Stooge short. A lot. He was known for a broad physical comedy career in his directorial bits, so obvious Stooge uh, collaborator. Yes. But for Cuckoo on a Choo Choo, we open with Larry and Shemp hiding out in a stolen railroad car called the Schmo. We never know how exactly he stole it because he declines to give that an answer. Now, Larry wants to marry his girlfriend Lenore, played by Patricia White, but she refuses to consent until Shemp marries her sister Roberta. Her older sister, that's the thing. Uh, Victoria Home. She is so tall and skinny, it's kind of fun watching her with the Three Stooges, who are all very short men. Yeah, often the women are just there in the background, but in this one, they get to participate in the slapstick a bit more than usual. Mm-hmm. Now, Lenore wants to honor her family's tradition of the oldest daughter marrying first, and Shemp is apparently very wealthy in this iteration. Uh, the problem <laughs> is that Shemp is rarely sober. Drinking alcohol, stashing jugs everywhere. Little and brown jugs. And whenever he drinks enough, he falls madly in love with an imaginary giant canary named Carrie. Yeah. <laughs> and whenever he drinks, the soundtrack plays this like lullaby little music. Jaunty lo musical tune. Yeah, music box thing. Yes. And then 
then and then once he starts getting like wrecked, we hear this loud, distracting, like, thunderous soundtrack bit. It's like I can't even do it. Now a private investigator from the railroad, Mo, finds the missing train, <laughs> and he's trying to get a sense of how the car was stolen from the moving train. We do not get one. <laughs> Mo's not a great detective. As fate would have it, Mo had a previous relationship with Roberta, has not seen her for years, and is still crazy about her. Uh, he's ecstatic to find her after years of disconnect and tries his best to rekindle the long-dormant love affair. Larry tries to pit Mo and Shemp against each other over Roberta, but Shemp still prefers Carrie, the imaginary canary. Uh, yeah, he, he, he really doesn't do too much other than kind of slur his words, other than he's pretty much himself. At some point, for no particular reason, Mo decides to abandon his responsibilities as a railroad <laughs> detective and stay with the group, and then trying to connive his way into Roberta's arms. The film ends with Shemp trying to follow Carrie, but bumping into the door, collapsing and knocking himself out. Uh, before then, he impresses both of the women because an electric shaver falls down his back, and uh, that just makes him a fantastic kisser. I was about to say a giant vibrator. I mean, like, honestly, the Three Stooges shorts are really, like, devoid of any sex jokes. Like, not even any sort of, like, you know, sneaky hee-hee ones. Yeah, you so. could get away with a little bit during the Hayes Code, but yeah. they don't try. No. Uh, Cuckoo on a Choo Choo was shot over the course of three days. Uh, the plot riffs on a streetcar named Desire, uh, Harvey, and Kiss Me Kate. Uh, Larry wears a torn t-shirt just like Marlon Brando in the film version of a streetcar named Desire and does a not great impersonation of Brando's uh, Stanley Kowalski throughout. Yeah. Mostly it's just he's trying to do the Brando mumble, but it, it's not quite there. No, not quite. He just kind of comes off as kind of like a big jerk, which is very contrary to, you know, Larry's usual stooge persona. Yeah, that's one of the many things that makes this an odd one. Mm-hmm. Uh, Patricia Wright, who played Lenore, is still alive as of this recording. She's 101. Good for her! Yeah, I mean, at this point, it's remarkable if, you know, anyone from this era is still around. Yeah. This one is generally argued amongst uh, the stooge fan base as being one of the absolute worst. But as I mentioned, uh, it is Larry's favorite. During his later years, when he was entertaining fans, he would screen it for them. Um, particularly during his twilight years. I mean, you know what? That's sweet, though. I mean, it's not horrible. Like, I think the one scene in it that is genuinely funny is when a skunk, like an adorable little live skunk, wanders in and, like, it crawls up on Shemp. And Shemp is, you know, obviously playing a drunk ski. And he just goes... Oh, a pussycat. <laughs> it's like not. And then the three students start sh throwing an obviously stuffed dummy skunk around at each other. And then sometimes it, you know, this other shot. No, it's the real skunk again. He's sitting on Shemp's head, moving his little head, and then the skunk leaves. That part was funny. You know, the whole time you're just like, oh, he's just a little guy. Yeah, like he's just a little guy. He's just a very cute, fat little skunk who got to star in a Three Stooges short. Yeah, I give this one points for ambition, at least compared to a lot of other late period Stooges yeah, pieces. Yeah, uh, recycled a lot of footage. Yeah, it's definitely better than the than the fake Shemp ones that we discussed in the prior episode. Oh, I, I agree. This is among the most surreal and offbeat of Stooges shorts, which is probably why Larry liked it so much. 
Uh, by most accounts, Fine would always suggest the most fantastical and out there jokes at story conferences, and he would often just like ad lib surreal nonsense. I mean, there's like a scene in Men in Black, which is honestly, which is the only three Stooges short to be nominated for an Oscar. There's a scene in it where they're playing doctors, and he's like, "Let's plug him and see if he's ripe." <laughs> Yeah, that's probably <laughs> Fine's most well-known ad-lib. Mm-hmm. Anyways, uh... I mean, just one more. I think it's another student short where he's speaking in Yiddish as part of, like, I'm going to sneak some nonsense words in here for all, you know, the goys watching this. <laughs> yeah, that's because to non-Jewish people, a lot of Yiddish words are inherently funny. We discussed that also on the Shemp episode. Mm-hmm. I know, as on for Larry Fine's later life, uh, his son John died in a car wreck at the age of 24 in 1961. I didn't actually know that. That's so sad. Yeah, his wife Mabel died six years later, very suddenly. Uh, Fine was about to perform a show in Rhode Island and immediately flew home, leaving Moe and Curly Joe to improvise the remaining gigs without him. Mm-hmm. As actually should be pointed out, while the Stooges were filming for over 40 years, they never stopped performing live. In 1970, Fine suffered a stroke that left half his body paralyzed. At the time, the Stooges were working on a TV series called Kook's Tour. Producer Norman Maurer edited the pilot into a standalone TV movie, and that marks the very last project done by the Three Stooges in any idiot. Yeah, and I do believe that Norman Maurer was married to Mo Howard's daughter. Yeah, I didn't look that up. The name was Joan Howard Maurer, and I wouldn't be surprised if that was true because all the Three Stooges, they were real family men, so... Yeah, and they all worked with each other and pulled everyone into the business. They're like the Coppolas. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mo briefly considered keeping the act going without fine, casting Emil Sitka, Stooge Life. Oh, yeah. He's the only member, only other, like, person who had performed with every single iteration of the Three Stooges. Sitka was supposed to play Larry's brother, Harry. However, Moe's health wasn't in great standing either, and ultimately he decided to call it a career. Fine lived for five more years after his stroke. Uh, He moved into the Motion Picture Country House, a retirement community for Hollywood professionals. Uh, While he never recovered the full use of his body and had to get along with the wheelchair, Fine proved to be an entertaining presence for the other residents and Mo, who frequently visited him. Uh, He regularly corresponded with Stooges fans, frequently hosted visiting fans in his apartment where he'd scream cuckoo on a choo-choo for them. (laughs) And he wrote a memoir entitled Stroke of Luck. Mm-hmm. Um, whenever a Stooge fan showed up for a visit and they were from the East Coast, uh, he would insist that they bring tasty cakes with them because that was apparently a regional snack that he couldn't get a hold of on the West Coast. Aw, that's so sweet. Yeah, he liked eating them as a kid. That's sweet. Larry Fine died on January 24th, 1975 at the age of 72. Mm-hmm. Uh, for Fine's legacy outside of the Stooges, Billy West's voice for Stimpy is based on Fine. I did not know that. It is super obvious after it's pointed out. I'm a little embarrassed because, like, as a small child, I watched Ren and Stimpy and the Three Stooges at roughly the same time, and it didn't connect to me that Billy West's uh, Stimpy mm-hmm. voice is essentially a more manic Larry. I'm going to have to look at that because I swear I watched like a little bit of Ren and Stimpy as like a, a small child. Um, I have no idea when I was ever seated in front of that, but I will have to double check. There's also a random episode of Pinky and the Brain where uh, Pinky and Brain get a third mouse to participate <laughs> in their 
Quest He's for Larry. World Domination, and his name is Larry, <laughs> and it's Billy West doing his Stimpy voice, and he even has the hair. Uh, of course he does. And it just ends with them doing a slapstick routine where Brain's hair is altered to look like Mo. Yeah, it's sort of like Mo. We got bold cut, bald, and curly cues. That's the Three Stooges right there. Yeah, except in this instance, Mo is a exaggerated Orson Welles impression. <laughs> Uh, Evan Handler plays Larry in the 2000 TV biopic, while Sean Hayes plays Larry in the 2012 Farrelly Brothers film. I feel like both of them did a pretty good job. I have not seen the Farrelly Brothers film. I assumed it was bad. It, it's okay. I mean, I think they try to put some drama in it, and you've got Larry David playing a nun, but there only is what well, the one scene in it that I thought was pretty funny is Mo gets a spray tan and joins Jersey Shore and essentially just does the whole Three Stooges annoy the rich people thing. That sounds more dated than the shit from 80 years ago. Yeah, I know, right? <laughs> Anyways, for themes, uh, first thing I wrote down was Larry as the glue. Yeah, it's like I said this in the Shemp episode, is that you need three Stooges. It doesn't quite work with just two. It changes the dynamic. And, you know, there are plenty of, you know, comedic duos. You know, you've got Laurel and Hardy and Abbott and Costello. But, you know, three. Three is a nice number. Yeah, Larry's role in the Stooges was often supportive. He was, relatively speaking, the voice of reason. Uh, Larry was most likely to be the reasonable figure and depending upon the situation, the sole source of lucidity. Of course, many of Larry's proposals were also outlandish or foolish, but no matter what, either way, he'd incur Moe's abuse. Yeah, but in, like, the realm of the pecking order, you know, Larry was always comfortably in the middle. Like, he could boss Curly and Shemp around if Moe wasn't around. Yeah, but if he tried to throw his weight around with Curly or Shemp and Moe was around, Moe would hit him. He, yeah, he'd be like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> He's like, stop hitting him, and he slaps him. <laughs> you know, Larry's on-screen persona was heavily informed by Fine's own very relaxed personality off-camera. Uh, that being said, Fine was loquacious in group settings and was known for ad-libbing goofy nonsense, as I've already said, <laughs> that often made it into the final film. Uh, everyone who worked with Fine would describe him as a yacker. That word kept coming up, yacker. <laughs> So yeah, while he is arguably the least defined out of the major personalities in Golden Age Stooges shorts, it is pretty much impossible to imagine the act without him. I don't know how Sitka would have done if they had made shorts with him. Uh, I mean, I imagine that anything after Shemp died and a good chunk of it immediately before can be dismissed by anyone aside from Stooge completionists. The Curly Joe shorts, I mean, there people try to go movie, easy. Movie. Too. Yeah, most of them try to go easy on them because, you know, it's just nice that they were finally able to get paid the way they deserved during the 30s. And I think most people have, at least most Stooges fans, seem to have a positive impression of Curly Joe, even though, you know, they were just old men who couldn't really do what they could uh, do beforehand anymore, physically. Yeah, I mean, I, I've i seen a lot of the Curly Joe movies. I haven't since I was a kid, but I still like them. They were funny. They're a little bit more, I guess, gentle <laughs> is the word I'm looking for. I mean, the Three Stooges in orbit is pretty funny. I mean, the Three Stooges fight 
white Martians. There's a great, like, you know, Austin Powers esque, oh, the Three Stooges can read the subtitles when the aliens are talking to each other. And it's like, destroy the Earth as you leave. Um, the Three Stooges go around the world in a daze. It's basically like, what if we did a modern version of Around the World in 80 Days and Phineas Fogg, the fourth serpents were Mo, Larry, and Curly Joe. And it just kind of, you know, parodies every single, you know, country that they visit. Um, they're they're all right. They're fine. But, you know, even as a little kid, I wanted to watch the Curly and Shemp shorts. Yeah, that brings me to my next point, uh, the philosophy of humor, which I figured this is as any time to uh, bring it up as, as ever because the Stooges is just like a primal facet of uh, American humor. Mm-hmm. Neuroscientists, anthropologists, psychologists, and philosophers are still a bit mystified as to why humans laugh and find things funny in general. Unlike many of our natural urges, there doesn't seem to be much practical utility for it. There are, from what I can find, three dominant theories, philosophically speaking, uh, as to why we have humor, uh, all of which have their boosters and critics. Uh, the first thing, and the oldest one, is the superiority theory. It was popularized by Aristotle, and this one roots humor in a place of hostility. Uh, it states that most humor is a tool to denigrate others and paint the comedian either as superior to their target or as a butt monkey for the audience to laugh at and feel cooler than smarter than. Anthropologists support the superiority theory by going into primate behavior, particularly how many uh, ape communities engage in mock battles. When people talk about superiority theory and throw their weight behind it, they usually paint satirists speaking truth to power, you know, your Lenny Bruce, George Carlin, Richard Pryor types. However, this is also very popular amongst people who are into trolling and bullying. They generally see themselves as the former category, and they're not. Yeah, unfortunately, every few months there's just some sort of comedian revealed to be horrible pervert, you know. Well, sometimes it just <laughs> denigrates as they get older mm -hmm. and society changes and they don't quite notice why their jokes aren't working anymore and decide to blame their audience for being too prissy and, you know, not understanding how genius they are. Or sometimes they just shift their moving targets as they get more uh, successful. You know, I was thinking like, you know, 20 years ago, Dave Chappelle was railing against white supremacy, and now he's using the very same approach to, like, denigrate queer people. I know. Now he's just having, like, little temper tantrums. Well, that's the thing. He's still, like, conducting himself as if he's a Richard Pryor speaking truth to power type, but he has convinced himself that, you know, since this marginalized group is now ascending to the point where you cannot ridicule them without getting any criticism. They are now the powerful that he needs to speak his truth to. Yeah, it's very punching down and not punching up. Another version of this would be like reality TV and daytime TV subjects. I was thinking of like, you know, the Dr. Phil types where like he's pretending to like help the people who are on his show, but it's really more of a, hey, look at this freak and laugh at them and feel better than them. You're watching TV at 11 in the morning and therefore don't have a job, but at least you're not this person <laughs> on Dr. Phil who thinks he's yeah. Batman. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was like the, that one story about the guy who filmed bum fights showing up to Dr. Phil dressed as Dr. Phil to basically point out that you and I are the same. 
I suppose you could file the Three Stooges into the butt monkey trope where, you know, they mm-hmm. sh- they're dopey idiots who are getting into shenanigans and we're pointing and laughing at them, but I could never personally get fully on board with that. Like, even as a small child, I empathize with the Stooges and saw myself in them. Yeah, it's like, I think that a lot of times if you look at, the, as like an adult, and now that I have a, you know, a bit of a better sense of history, is that the Three Stooges were definitely, you know, men of their time, men of the people. Like, they never became rich. They were working class Jewish actors who, you know, most of the time their targets were literal Nazis, as we'll talk about in Moe's episode, or like, you know, the rich, the people with power. And more often than ever, the Three Stooges are like criminals or bad. They're not like murderers or something. They have the audience's sympathy. It's not like you could say that, oh yeah, the Three Stooges are like critiquing the social system. I would definitely think that they are certainly highlighting it, and they're experiences in the shorts are a lot more relatable than I'd say than some modern comedians. Yeah, they are working class Hollywood. Columbia never paid them what they were worth. Uh, they made a lot more money than they actually got, which, you know, yeah, you know, yeah I can sympathize uh, with that. Yeah, like uh, Larry Fine, he had a gambling issue. He and his wife loved to gamble, and there wasn't, like, you know, insurance or savings accounts. So Mo Howard, as the on and off screen leader of the Three Stooges, made sure that he did take some money from his paycheck into a savings account, and that's what took care of him during. During his twilight years after his stroke. Yeah, I mean, I don't want to make too many Marx Brothers comparisons, but mm-hmm. um, Groucho and Harpo uh, cut Chico off from his own money for reasons of gambling compulsions and had to, like, mm-hmm. give him a stipend because otherwise he'd just piss it all away. Yeah. And yeah. a lot of times in, like, some of the shorts that were filmed during World War II, the Three Stooges, they're, they're talking about it. They're, 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 um, they're talking, they make jokes about rationing. There's, like, a song that Curly sings about, like, cooking some sort of a vegetable, and he ends it with, As it ain't rationed. <laughs> and there's a whole episode called G.I. Wanna Go Home about a housing shortage for returning troops and the Three Stooges are returning soldiers who don't know where to live with their wives and of course they have a very you know stoogy solution to it where they essentially build a house outside that is just windows and like doorways but no walls no floor no furniture but they act like it's completely normal. I like how you did the air quotes. Yeah, I did the air quotes. It was a podcast. Yeah, I should say air quote. (laughs) Anyways, the next theory for uh, why we laugh at things is the relief theory. This one was popularized in the 18th century, which is sometime after Aristotle. Uh, (laughs) This one argues that humor is a release valve that people use to relieve stress. The whole laughing to keep from crying idea. Uh, This is where we get our self-deprecating humor, uh, probably a lot of our dark comedy and gallows humor, although superiority theorists use that one too, although generally in a much more mean-spirited fashion. gallows humor if you are the one upon the gallows. And getting to the Stooges, this is also a popular perspective on comedy from movements that are rooted in persecution 
persecuted minority communities, you know, talking about Jewish comedy and African-American comedy. So mm -hmm. there is a lot of relief theory that is very uniquely American. And since, you know, that first started getting thrown around during the Enlightenment, it kind of makes sense that, you know, it glommed onto uh, the country that Washington and Jefferson and all those other people who at least played lip service to John Locke would uh, <laughs> go into. And uh, this also goes into the uh, cultural anthropologist idea of humor as play. You know, humor being a signal that we are playing. And since we're living in late-stage neoliberalism, where we're trying to squeeze as many work hours out of every person as we possibly can, this part has been downplayed, especially amongst adults, but humans need to play or anxiety and stress will overtake us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, laughing is very cathartic. And, you know, they said humans need to play. It's true. Like, my friends and I have been getting into, like, Monster High and Rainbow High dolls. And I haven't played with dolls since I was maybe 12 years old. I'm 30 now. And I'm having such a good time taking care of my dolly. Like, I brush her hair. I buy her clothes. Like, you know, it's calming. You, you never stop needing that sort of play. I mean, when people talk about play in this context it's usually about kids games but it also works for stuff that's socially acceptable amongst adults like you know join a pickup basketball league or something mm -hmm. although um adults buying toys for them from themselves is one fourth of the toy market so 25 percent is a big chunk of change yeah, another thing the cultural anthropologists bring up that's semi-related is how people are often ticklish in spots that they are incredibly vulnerable to. If you think about the spots that you're ticklish in, usually it's close to the spot of like a vital organ or um, the, bo feet. the bottom of your feet, which, you know, if you got that damaged back in the days of two or three million years ago, that would inhibit your ability to survive. Mm -hmm. So... Some not only cultural anthropologists, but evolutionary biologists position that the reason that humans are ticklish to begin with is that's supposed to teach us in a playful manner to be guarded about our vital spots. That makes sense. I mean, yeah, if you hear it from a deep stentorian voice like my own, it sort of tracks, but <laughs> once again, this is just an idea. I'm not sure how much hard science is behind it. I mean it kind of makes sense. Like, you can watch plenty of videos of animals play fighting. Like, one thing I learned is that dogs will sneeze before roughhousing because they want you, you know, the other dog, to know that they're, pl that you're, they're playing. It's like, I'm going to, like, pretend to bite you, but I'm just playing because I sneeze. Not unlike uh, Curly's little barking whenever he gets rejected. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah, this is one of those things where science starts crossing over into philosophy, so, mm -hmm. you know, make a case if you can. Yeah. Uh, Alright, and the last theory, and the most popular one in the present day, is the incongruity theory. Uh, this was also popularized in the 18th century, although Aristotle does mention it. Mm -hmm. um, this roots humor in recognizing and pointing out the nonsensical or absurd elements of existence. You know, any joke that subverts expectations or violates the norm. Just pretty much all jokes, depending on how broadly you place your standards. Yeah. And the thinking behind this one is that we live in, in an absurd, massive universe where most of the deepest questions we have are completely unknowable. And, you know, getting back to the laughing to keep from crying idea, uh, the idea is that pointing out the absurdity is just a, a way to process it and to cope with it. This makes me think of the Dada movement, which 
as I mentioned in previous episodes, <laughs> came up after the end of World War One, where a whole lot of institutions that were seen as unassailable suddenly collapsed, and these groups of artists came up thinking that nothing makes sense anymore, and that pointing out the ridiculousness of it and laughing at it was, in some ways, one could argue a form of bravery. The incongruity theory of humor is the preferred theory of Kant, Kierkegaard, and Schopenhauer. Hilarious gentlemen all. <laughs> uh, most modern psychologists and philosophers also buy into this one. Yeah, I feel like that theory is the one that fits the Three Stooges the most, since a lot of, you know, every almost every single short is, you put the Three Stooges in this, you know, normal, ordinary situation, and they make it funny. Like, can you imagine, like, if the Three Stooges really showed up to, like, a horse race, and they fed the horse pepperinos, and it started running around? Like, that's just absurd. It's funny. And, you know, there's nothing funnier than explaining how a joke works, but, mm -hmm. yeah, when you get down to it, a whole lot of film comedy and just comedy in general is just setting an expectation and then violating it. Mm -hmm. That informs the slapstick of the Three Stooges, the universally appealing physical humor. Um, it's been pointed out that modern Hollywood doesn't really release too many comedies to theaters because they're more dependent on overseas halls than they ever were before, and very culturally specific verbal humor doesn't sell well in like China or Brazil or anything, so mm -hmm. they just stick to action movies because stuff blowing up is uh, appealing to everyone. Mm -hmm. And the only exception to that is physical humor. Like, like, the most successful comedian of the past 30, 40 years is Mr. Bean, who's <laughs> essentially a pantomime performer. Yeah, he does talk, but rarely. Most of the stuff that's funny about him, you don't need language for no, it. No, you don't. Yeah, that's why Mr. Bean is not only very popular overseas, but he's very popular amongst immigrants in England because they have this guy that they can instantly connect to. Mm -hmm. They don't need to know the language super well to get him. Yeah. And that's probably why the physical comedians do better than than otherwise like yeah. even though those films are about a hundred years old the the chaplain and the buster keaton shorts still feel relevant in a way that yeah. a lot of other stuff like Abbott and costello or laurel and hardy doesn't seem so as much mm -hmm. and yeah. uh yeah the stooges benefit from that i think yeah they do and you know i guess to show you that so there are certain you know like jokes and and themes in the three stooges that you know you you do need to have an appreciation for history to understand and there are some elements of Three Stooges shorts that have not aged well at all. Like there's one short where they have that they do some very bad yellow face because remember this is World War Two, so we hate Japanese people. That is very you know was not good then, and it's certainly not good now. What's surprising is how little of that there is. Yeah, there really aren't any sort of like you know. You would think there'd be more. You'd think there'd be more like sexist or racist jokes in the Three Stooges but there really aren't. I mean, there are there are very few black actors, but I think there's this one guy, what was his, oh, um, something, Bud. I, I mentioned him last. You did, yeah, in the Champ episode. Yeah, like, you know, he, he gets 
some good moments and like none of them are really you know if you're a black person has a problem with it your opinion of course supersedes mine but like there isn't anything that i noticed that on that i would go ooh, that's bad because like honestly so many like modern like within our lifetimes modern you know comic movies there's usually some sort of like ooh, or like really you know homophobic or transphobic joke because you know it's not even the line of like what's acceptable it's that it's not funny anymore to punch down on on people you know literally like there's one whole sequence in fucking Talladega Nights that the whole joke is just that Sasha Baron Cohen's character is gay that's the whole joke uh, yeah that is a big part of boomer comedy even though um I think most of the Talladega Nights people are Gen Xers mm-hmm. they're just like gay people existing is inherently uncomfortable to them and is therefore funny mm-hmm yeah, or just like I was watching Zoolander and it's great, and then there's just a transphobic moment in it, and I'm like, ah, like that's not funny, you know. <laughs> well, yeah, that's when you get to like when, when boomer humor started hitting big, like you know your your National Lampoon, uh, First Gen, Saturday Night Live, David Letterman. A, a lot of those guys were like upper middle class white dudes, and they were inheriting some of the spirit of rebellion against the hippies. So they're just like. We're going to push all these boundaries and these buttons and make people uncomfortable. And if we're alienating people Andy, Andy Kaufman style, that means that it's working. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that's where you get like the um, the Chevy Chase style stuff where uh, you approach the gay guy and be like, hey, you know what would be really funny if we do this recurring bit where you have AIDS and, you, and we weigh you every week. That is sickening. You know, I think that, you know, you should, you know, speak truth to power and make people uncomfortable and to, you know, not like in like a bad uncomfortable way, but maybe to examine some of their prejudices through humor. But then again, culture is always changing. You know, what's funny is constantly changing. And, you know, humor usually often ages like milk, but the Three Stooges, not so much. They're still funny. Yeah, I mean, it's often said that if you are uh, accustomed to having an elevated status in society, mm-hmm. uh, a rise in equality feels like oppression to you. You know, if you come into it with a reactionary background, the idea that you could you you were able to taunt like queer people when you were a kid, but now you get criticized for it, that feels like you are losing power, and that those people now have power. So when you are saying stuff against them, you are speaking truth the power you're actually the underdog yeah but maybe it gets down to this that i think a lot of other comedians who may be experiencing this is that they're just not as funny as they thought they were well i recently read an interview with dave attell who was a stand-up comedian and he is not a pc comedian by any stretch of it uh the last bit i watched from him was about how there was no romantic way to fist someone (laughs) but see that's actually funny though yeah but he never gets canceled even though he does a lot of raunchy stuff and has like gay jokes and stuff but the so thing about why it, is it funny though? That's the thing. It's, it comes down to why is something funny? Like uh, Wanda Sykes has a rape joke that's actually pretty funny. It's about her talking about how she wishes she could take her pussy out. Like when I go, she's like, when I go for a walk, I want to be able to just take my pussy out and leave it at home. So if some guy comes out to get me, I'd be like, I don't 
don't have it on me. I left it at home. What I think separates someone like Attell from, like, you know, your Dave Chappelle's is that... John Mulaney's. <laughs> when he says, the, like, if I do a joke and the audience doesn't laugh, I work on the joke. Yeah. He doesn't like, oh, I'm a genius. These people aren't laughing because they're stuck up. Yeah, it kind of goes down to the fact that it's like, I am I the main character here? I am the main character, and I feel like he seems to have a pretty good idea that he is not the main character. Yeah, you can do racial humor, you can do humor about the queer community, you can do humor that is darker and off the beaten path, but it's the way you tell the joke and the way you thread that needle. Exactly. Yeah, the, 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 the context is everything. Yeah. I watched this one um, comedian, and, and he's a transgender man, and he had this whole bit about aging. And he's like, he's like, you know, it's like when we get older, we all stop having like gendered features. So when I get to be an old man, I'm just gonna turn right back into a woman. I'm gonna come full circle. All right. Well, that's about everything in my notes, and we veered off for a little bit. Yeah, so well, uh, we're talking about humor, and, and like you know. Humor to talk about the Three Stooges. I mean, my last final thought is is that the next time you watch a Three Stooges short, pay extra attention to Larry. I certainly did that when we were watching them tonight. Yeah, and uh, also think about why the Three Stooges still mostly work and Chevy Chase doesn't. Yeah. All right, thanks for listening to everybody. Join us next time. Nick, nick, nick.